this whole idea of streaming music started to be conversed about with with the big publishers and labels and eventually, you know, the iPods and the Rio players. And you didn't have to know the marketing, right? You didn't have to know the the business side of it. And, and to be honest, you really didn't know how to navigate that as an artist. Well, that's all changed now, right? What you're starting to see are more independents taking control over their destiny through the tools and technologies that are available at our fingertips. Welcome to Humanizing Software where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives. Hear incredible stories and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. We talk with a number of global leaders about their perspectives, their experience, their take on this concept of keeping the humans into technology and what that actually means from a real life experience perspective and what that means from what we've learned from the past, what we're currently experiencing now in the present and what that can be in the future. We invite for you to please digitally engage with us. Ask us questions afterwards, just continue to keep the conversation going about all things relative to humanizing software. We invite you to follow us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, and of course on YouTube. And again, join the conversations as we spread the word about this concept of humanizing software, and more importantly, the people-driven technology aspect of it. We've had some fast, fascinating guests in the past with Ian Young, Joanne Corum, Manolo Almagro, uh, Sharon Love, and others that have shared their take. And this week, very excited to have John Cesaro, the president of Media Tech Ventures and associated with somewhere between five and 50. I haven't yet been able to keep track of the count. Other different organizations join us for his take on humanizing software. So as we jump in to today's episode, welcome to John to the conversation on humanizing software. John, good morning to you. Good morning, good sir. <laughs> and I've got to start off. I know because I was reviewing your LinkedIn profile and some other items last night, and I saw so many of these things that said from, I think, like 1980 to present that you're still involved with, that you're still a part of, whether it's an incubator, whether it's mentor, whether it's founder, whether it's just pick your thing. And so I just went ahead and went with the broad five to 50. And five to 50. With it. I like it. That's, that's, that's like Jim Collins' next book, right? There we go. Yeah, that's it. Great five, from to five, to five to 50. It is. So John, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly are blessed to have you on the live cast on Humanizing Software. And as we've done with every one of our previous guests, we love to start off with letting everybody that is either listening or those that will be joining us shortly understand and hear who is John Cesaro, the man, the myth. Five to 50. Uh, <laughs> I got I to gotta make that shirt now. Uh, it's so funny. And, and there's a reason for that too. And, and hopefully I can shed some light there because as entrepreneurs, if I think it just means nobody wants to hire us, right? Recovering professional musician of over a decade and it got into the marketing world after music and started realizing a lot of similarities between entrepreneurship and artists, you know, being from the Chicagoland area, grew up here, had my marketing agencies here and then relocated to Central Texas, Austin specifically, and taking over sales and marketing for Enterprise Solutions Company. We raised money from CTAN, Central Texas Angel Network, and quickly realized and was frustrated with how easy it was to raise capital for antiquated enterprise technology when 75% of our musicians were living at or below the poverty line in the live music capital of the world. And so I started working with the city and figuring out why that was and realized quickly there just a disconnect um, i think between private and public sectors on the industry side turn to the private sector and section when i met paul o'brien in october of 2016 and we had coffee and we realized we were trying to solve a very similar problem from two very different perspectives and long story short we're very passionate about innovation, entrepreneurship, supporting innovators. And with my background in the actual art side of it and his background and more of the ad tech, Yahoo 
Silicon Valley side of it, Sequoia Capital, we were able to distill down, I think, something meaningful for both sides of the aisle with two very different perspectives. And so the easiest way to think about me is I, I just like to connect innovators with the right networks, resources, tools, right? People to, to do what they do, innovate. Entrepreneurs are the most overworked, underpaid people. And if we can lower the barrier and, and democratize accessibility, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get less quibbies out there and get one more $1.75 billion invested in hardworking, incredible entrepreneurs because it's the digital economy. We should be able to do that pretty easily. So interesting on a number of different pieces, and I'm going to have you explain the specifics around Quibis here at some point. But more importantly, let's talk about where it all began. I know that we touched base on a number of the five to 50, which I'm now, that is going to become like a hashtag or a thing, or we're just going to make that happen, five to 50. But the the important piece, let's talk a little bit about family. Let's talk a little bit about where you came from, what yeah. those early influences in your life, kind of the stuff that uh, really makes John tick. My dad was an entrepreneur, you know, a great story about him was uh, we went to Disney World when I was a kid and my dad was at IBM and he was actually back in the 80s, top 3% at IBM. And he's a mainframe expert. He has been over 35 plus years now. And he was promised a raise and a promotion. We got back and that ended up not happening. Two guys ended up splitting a salary and, and he ended up getting let go. And so he went on kind of a war path to steal back that business. And so ended up taking out a loan, launching Paradigm Concepts, flying all over the US for months on end, uh, going all to, his, to all of his accounts and getting some of that business back and uh, grew a very successful business. And I remember being young and walking into the office with my dad being the guy, right? And just loving the environment but also learning a lot at a young age and seeing the way my dad did interact with people, did have a great relationship with everybody that he worked with. You know, my, I don't think anybody disliked my dad to this day, both family and in business. He was just always a great, great leader, great guy, great resource. And, and so I got a lot of that early on as a kid. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. So I knew I wanted to work for myself. Well, what did that look like? Well, I don't know. I wasn't particularly good at school. So, you know, I didn't pursue college after high school, ended up moving to New York when I was 19 with one of my best friends and making music and pursuing music. Because if you look at your idols and music, a lot of them didn't go to college and a lot of them were, you know, screw the man. <laughs> I'm going to go do this my way. And uh, didn't really jive well in the household, as you can imagine, one of five kids. My dad's got a couple of master's degrees. And so it was, uh, you know, what's your backup plan? Well, I'm, there is no backup plan. This is what I'm doing. And I'm going to go do it. And to the best of my capabilities. The other thing that I realized too was I knew I wanted to work for myself, but being gone a lot was not really something that I wanted to be either. I wanted to be able to work from home right, and, and build a, an organization where I can work from home. So as life went on now having three kids of my own married here in Geneva, Illinois, I've realized I didn't want to have, didn't want to travel a lot. And in, you know, playing music professionally as well was obviously not inducive of very at home type of, of lifestyle. And that's kind of when I started making the switch into more of the marketing side of, of the world and took what I had learned from playing music and, and doing that with four incredible guys. We were together for almost a decade and applying it to more the private sector business side now, right? What I had picked up on the creative side of things. And it, it, to my surprise, there was a lot of crossover. I've been very, very fortunate to be in the room with the people that I've, I've been in the room with and get the opportunities from the people that have given me opportunities. And I hope that I haven't let any of them down. And that's why I've been able to accomplish quite a bit in a short amount of time, five to 50. I learned a lot early on watching my dad, knowing what I wanted and trying to build an environment that supported my ADHD rather than played against it. And that's why I am a part of a lot of things and doing a lot of things because I almost need to be in chaos to feel comfortable at times. So that multiple threads that I want to tug on on that. And thank you. Thank you for the background on that. Uh, that uh, certainly your dad had a huge impact early on in your, and not only as the quintessential father figure, but somebody that followed a path of risk um, and reward and hard work paying off for that with going at, you know, set, it's the age old, I'm going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to set out to do something and I'm going to take all the steps necessary to do it, no matter what, the, what it takes to make that happen. 
And it sounds like you learned quite a bit from that and you have it. It's, it's unique because ever, ever since I know you, John, you do have this multifaceted approach to things. It's not just from a singular background where you've just done X or Y. You've got so many different tunes to pull from or background pieces to pull from. Uh, and I know you've done some really cool stuff on the uh, uh, on the musical industry side. Let's let's start there because I think it spins I think it spins a good thread specifically around the tie-in between different industries and you say, all right, well what do music and technology remotely have to do with each other? There's a lot more than most people might think. So let's start with music and then blend that in with the tie-ins with technology and I'll let you kind of take with it and run with it. <laughs> sure. A lot of us at, at MediaTek like to consider ourselves enlightened generalists is the term. And, and you know, back in the 60s and 70s, when you would play music, all you had to do was be really good at what you did, right? Be a master of your artistic craft. You know, the labels would get wind of what you were doing. They would send out reps. Uh, they would watch your shows. Is this a good opportunity? Then they would present you with, uh, you know, a recording contract. Come to find out, <laughs> recording contracts are just essentially safe notes. Now in, in, in the venture capital era where it was essentially a loan, somebody says, here's a million dollar recording contract. That's actually a million dollar loan that they're investing in you. And yeah, the reason why it's a million dollar contract is because you're going to be working with some of the best people in the industry, right? From producing to marketing, to touring, to business management, and they're taking a bet on you. And a lot of these labels for every one that did extraordinarily well paid for 10 to 20 that kind of bombed and flopped, right? It was a numbers game, no different than venture capital, right? Family offices and a lot of these innovation programs that that operate now, just the terms were way worse as musicians and artists back in the day. And you hear the horror stories of all these incredible artists that to this day, some of them don't even own the rights to certain libraries and, and music that they created that's making millions and millions and tens of millions over the years that the publishing and, and the labels have, have held ownership over it. And so I think what music helped me realize was it, it, the art of the possible is infinite in, in art, right? Like the music, you can do anything with it. It's a blank slate. There are certain rules, but at the same time, there are no rules, right? I mean, music is extraordinarily subjective to the individual and its creator and the listener. You know, what I think is good, you might think is crap. What you think is fantastic, I might think is awful. But that's the beauty of art, isn't it, right? Like there's a niche for everybody. There's a flavor, different strokes for different folks. But then when you go into this, this business, well, this is interesting, right? Because in business, there are rules, there are guidelines, there are, you know, these, these ways to operate in laws and legal structures and corporate structures and partnership agreements and right and, and sales and marketing. And when you go from the infinite possibility to more of a confined construct of what it is to be able to get from A to Z in business, it almost the art of the possible and the infinite helps you kind of capitalize off of all these different elements in ways that somebody that just went to school for business or somebody that only focused on a certain area of business might miss out on because they're looking at things more objectively rather than subjectively. Understood. And it's interesting, you you made a number of different concept or ideas that you just spoke to there, especially on the music ownership. And I know there's been companies that are bringing together non-fungible tokens or NFTs as it pertains to music. They're talking about the making individual notes of songs potentially being made available. There's mm -hmm. They call them, they call them stems. Yeah. And, and the stems of the songs. And then there's even discussion about artificial intelligence creating oh, yeah. music and this, this creative expression from a human versus this creative expression from a machine. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a lot of the microcosm here of what we're talking about, about humanizing software. At what point does that crossover get to a point where it becomes a problem, a challenge, whether moral, ethical, monetary, whatever, Lee, for folks? But let's dive in on that specific Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Andrew coming out with the, with the bangers this morning. So, so look, a lot of the challenges that we have in the music industry today, I think are less challenges and more opportunities. And let me tell you why. 
in the 60s and 70s and even in the 80s, you know, as we started getting in the 90s, when this whole idea of streaming music started to be conversed about with, with the big publishers and labels and eventually, you know, the iPods and the Rio players and the disruption of CDs and, and streaming and all this other thing happened. You didn't have to know the marketing, right? You didn't have to know the the business side of it. And, and to be honest, you really didn't know how to navigate that as an artist uh, without these tools at your fingertips. Well, that's all changed now, right? What you're starting to see are more independents taking control over their destiny through the tools and technologies that are available at our fingertips. And this is something that I'm very bullish on with artists. If you wake up at two o'clock in the afternoon and you roll over to smoke a bowl because you don't have a gig until later that night, you know, maybe you're a hobbyist and that's okay, right? Like the most successful musicians are the ones that still get up early in the morning and they go in the studio and they force themselves to write every day and they force themselves to learn more about the business and how marketing works and advertising works and streaming works and all of these things, just so they know. You might not like how it is, but you should know how it is, right? In order to be successful in an ever-changing digital economy. And I tell musicians all the time, there's no better time in history than to be a musician than there is like right now. With all the tools we have at our fingertips, as technology continues to integrate seamlessly across these types of infrastructures, your website to your CRM, to your streaming, to your tools to be able to engage your audience, you could never do that 15 years ago, especially in the music industry, because a lot of these platforms are very closed, right? They, their data is their data and they didn't want to integrate. You know, I remember logging into 10 different tools one morning going, what am I doing with my life right now? Before I could even make an intelligent decision on what next we should do as a band, I'm logging into so many tools. I'm like drowning in information and none of it's connected and it's all fragmented in silos. And is it really providing value? Not intelligently. That was a big issue. So I tell artists all the time, learn how to build a website, right? Learn how analytics works. Just get good with Google Analytics and just learn, get really good with one advertising infrastructure, whether it's Facebook, whether it's TikTok, it's Instagram, right? Because when you do that, you're going to be miles ahead in the digital economy than the artists that don't. All you need to find are 20,000 people all over the world that love what you're putting out. And if you think about in a world of 8 billion, 20,000 is a very small number. And if I just understood who was looking at what and wanted to engage with me just a little bit better than the next person, the next band, 20,000 is on average $60,000 a year, right? For like a musician putting out, putting out you know, music and stuff they can sell. Then they can explore all the other things that are out there, right? But what happened is when the internet came, it brought all this media together, right? And it devalued media across the board. It gave birth to VR and AR and podcasting, all of like video games, all these incredibly thriving and that are changing the world as we know it, as we speak, right? Video games brings in over $200 billion a year as an industry, more than the movie and music industries combined, but it also leveled the playing field, right? Anybody could put anything out at any point in time, anywhere, all the time. And so how do you compete with all the time? Well, you got to get really good at understanding who's looking at the stuff all the time, right? So people putting out stuff all the time. I want to come back to that one. You said something earlier on that years ago, you were logging in to like 10 different platforms to <laughs> just be able to get your day started or to be able to start doing what in a way it boggles my mind. And in another way, if I think back, yeah, there was a lot of that where you, in order to make something happen, regardless of your job, whether it was in the music industry, whether it was in the tech industry, whether it was in service industry, whatever, as people started throwing technology or throwing different ways of access to make things supposedly easier. There's a variety of different ways where people were trying to bring this together and everybody had the newest, best, hottest, coolest thing. <laughs> yep. You you had, and, and whether it was two or five or 10, you had multiple different access points that you had to participate with, log in to be able to make something happen. Yep. Which one of those do you recall was this was really well done and I, it was actually helpful to me. So it was an example of a good kind of ahead of its time technology platform. And which one of those was, 
I have to do this. I hate that I have to do this. This is just a pain in the butt. And just, they, just, they just don't have it right. So, I mean, I want to, let's go back in time a little bit and talk about the goods, bads, and uglies of those different I, I, I've got the answers like right <laughs> off the shelf for you. Indiegogo was a Bible of ours early on. It was a platform really for independent artists that aggregated you know, people looking for acts all over the country. You can pick up gigs. Uh, you can connect with other bands. They gave you tips and tools and resources and best practices with touring. And, you know, I've read an article when you go to a Starbucks to get extra milk, you know, from Starbucks. I'll never forget reading that. So you can like pour it in your cereal. Like if you have cereal in the band van, right? Like little things like that, that, you know, it, it goes a long way when you put it into practice. Indiegogo was, I remember reading an article about providing pizza to college radio stations in exchange for an interview. Every time we did that, we always, we always ended up getting interviews. Like it was just, it was incredible, right? We're going to be in town. Like they want to have indie artists on the show anyway, get them a pizza, give them a couple of tickets to the show. Everybody wins. So Indiegogo was, was really essential for us just learning how to early on, right? Because again, there's this weird position as an artist sometimes where, especially younger artists, where this whole idea of selling out or this whole idea of actually making a living off what you love to do, but not working with the corporate executives because every book you read from your peers, they've gotten screwed by the guy, right? They've gotten screwed by the label. So you've got this preconceived notion going into an industry that's already exploitative and extraordinarily sharkish, right? Even though a lot of these people want to help, I'm already playing defense because I think you're out to screw me, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? Like he's got a suit on. I don't think that's good. So, you know, it, it, it took a while to grow up from that, right? And the whole idea of like selling out, making a living off what you love to do. And it's just it's just so wild to me what what artists, they self-sabotage a lot of times. The worst tool was a tool called Sonic Bids. What an exploitative piece of trash that you would have to pay essentially a fee to be put into a pool to be considered for gigs. Right. Wow. Whether that was festivals, conferences, and it was a very successful platform on top of it. Ended up getting acquired, actually, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And I just remember thinking to myself, we already don't make any money. Right. Like people asking us to play for tips, asking us to play for exposure. And the amount of time it takes from an artist to go from learning their instrument to writing songs with other people that learn their instruments to feel comfortable to play in front of people is an extraordinary amount of time. And so the, the fact that we're already at a deficit when it comes to revenue, and now we need to pay to like be considered for things. And there's a, there's a, a very high chance we're not even going to get it. Like how much, how much lower can you go? Right. So, so essentially paying a subscription for a service that you might not even be able to use. It's exactly. Exactly. Hmm. It was just like a, a directory of conferences or festivals or whatever, be considered for the side stage at whatever festival, right. In a pool of 500 other, other bands. And now, you know, they charge $30 per submission. There you go. Right. They're laughing all the way to the bank. And, you know, some, some poor chum gets to play on a side stage at nine o'clock in the morning at a festival that nobody's at yet. Wow. So hold on, paying for something that you may or may not use in the future. That sounds a little bit like my college degree, a separate conversation <laughs> altogether, uh, to totally separate conversation. All right. So back on the music side of the equation. So where is Indiegogo now? Still around? Acquired? Bigger? Still better? around? I don't think they're. I don't think they were acquired. I mean, it's been it's been a long time since I've I've used that platform or, or taken a look at it. I've been out of the music game now for over a decade. So you know, I, I hope they're still going. They were a great resource. They really they really helped us understand the kind of the rules of the road early on and in break out of our you know city shell and, and really kind of get out there and tour more and get on the road more. So. You know, hats off to them. They were an incredible resource, and I, and I hope they're continuing to be an incredible resource for up and coming artists. Okay, and and the other Sonic bits you think might have gotten acquired, but yeah, I don't think I don't think they're around anymore. And if they are, stay away from it. <laughs> well, it's one of those things you got to learn. Let's talk more on the technology, the actual experiential side. Those are two platforms that had two entirely different purposes: one that worked mm -hmm. well, one that did not work well. And this was at least obviously over ten years ago than mm -hmm. you were using them when platform as a service or even platforms weren't really platforms as a service or even platforms. They were just some sort of right. software that you right. had to interact with. What was some of the 
user design or user experience components that you had. You're a creative artist, but you're not, you've got an entrepreneurial spirit. You're trying and you've got four other guys that are part of your your band, your group, everything else associated with that. And by the way, we've got Andy who's just come in. Indiegogo is now a crowdfunding platform focused on arts, film, and music. Thank you, Andy. That's awesome from LinkedIn, giving us the goods on the latest with Indiegogo. So thank you for that. But as we look back and, and you're, you're going back in time, 10, 12, 14 years ago, goods, bads, and uglies relative to the actual experience, not the purpose of the platform, but the actual experience itself. When you're, you've got this hunger, your dad was in technology, your dad was a go-getter relative to enterprise software. You've had some experience with enterprise software since. Goods, bads, and uglies relative to what you experienced as an artist back in the day. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. A couple of different reasons why. You know, the, the first one is if you look at industries, right? If you look at healthcare, if you look at financial industries, if you if, if you look at these bigger institutions, right? Technology was always at the kind of the forefront, right? That was like what they thought of first when they were like building and, and scaling these, these industries, right? From, from ERPs to your CRMs and CMSs, a lot of these things were designed for with like healthcare industry in mind or FinTech or whatever it is, right? But now with music and with art in general, technology, it wasn't a really big part of the industry out of the gate, more of designed for the industry itself rather than for the artists, if that makes sense, right? Because I, I tell musicians all the time, remember the music industry was developed to support the music industry, not to like support the artists, right? Like you are your own enterprise, right? You're your own startup, whether or not you, you, you acknowledge that it's the truth, knowing that and going into it with that mindset, understand that the tooling available in the music industry a lot of time was for the user to experience, to explore, to find, to stream, right? To learn about these musics because that's what's helping the industry thrive, right? So the, the artist ends up being the beneficiary, right? Of, of discovery and in and, and shows and engagement and, and what was designed for the music industry itself. So as far as early on, it was it was a lot of kind of broken, you know what I mean? Like little add-ons to other platforms like a MySpace or a, you know, a, a Bandcamp or a, an Indiegogo. It was, it was never these like all-in-one solutions really built to support, right? Artists on their journey of becoming an enterprise, right? Like a lot of technology is for a SaaS company as an example, right? Like there's clear infrastructure out there to support my business endeavors. And I can choose from a plethora of resources Whereas artists were like, which tooling is going to help me make the best decisions right now where I'm at? Because I might upgrade into something later on, but I can't even afford and begin to understand how to afford some of the infrastructure. These other technical entrepreneurs will probably have a much higher degree of, of uh, being able to afford out of the gate than myself. So it sounds like there's a lot of diversity and experience based off of where some people, tech gearheads, nerds, geeks, whatever, that might have a particular affinity might be all in on that. Others that were specifically on the creative didn't even want to touch it, didn't want to have anything to do with it. You're just going to have a wide range of from getting really deep into the woods to just, hey, somebody else needs to deal with that because I don't care. And yet it was ever evolving to the different types of platforms and services and capabilities that we've got now. And which are, it doesn't take much to be able to, and obviously we utilize StreamYard and we are streaming simultaneously on multiple different services around the world. You're in one specific spot, I'm in another. The power of technology here in 2022, and when we look back at this in 2026 or 2028, we're going to be laughing about what the changes have been and over the last four to six years from in the future, looking back now at the, oh, those guys were so cute back then. Ha ha ha. A hundred, a hundred percent. But there's still, there's still things that in my opinion too are still true. Like when I was trying to figure out how to decrease our touring costs, as an example, lodging is a really big piece of that, right? Buying a hotel night, wherever you're touring is, it's expensive, especially with five guys. So I ended up finding Couchsurfing, right, .org, which, you know, you can say was Airbnb before they figured out how to monetize it. And it's still a community to this day. And I created a profile for the band and everybody wanted to host the band. So I was actually able to get rid of one third of our touring costs by just creating a profile on Couchsurfing.org. 
and being put up by people in every city that we toured in. And these are people that love their city, loved hosting. And what we would end up doing is we'd give them, you know, 15, 20 tickets to the show to invite their friends. And a lot of times we'd end up playing like a private show for them at their house and their friends afterwards and getting a keg. And, and you know what I mean? And like, as a, as a thank you, because why not? All right. But then when you start staying in these homes, now you can actually buy food and like prepare meals. Right. And like eat a little bit healthier than stopping at all the fast food chains, which will kill you on the road if that's how you want to live. So there's still some mechanics. Right. And still some things that I, I believe are, are very uh, beneficial to artists to be able to manage costs in, in their time appropriately and, and the value that it provides them. What's really interesting now is this whole idea of democratization of, of, of ownership, right? And really trying to create technology that allows artists to really own everything about their catalog and their likeness and making sure that they're getting paid for a stream fairly, making sure that they're getting paid when somebody uses their song and they didn't know about it or a spin on YouTube because YouTube's, YouTube actually plays more music than any other platform. And we all know that they're not really paying out the way that they should. So, you know, how do we really capitalize on all these digital elements that are going to continue to innovate and grow, but making sure that it does go back to the artists and the people that created that? in its initial inception is super important. And I think we're really close to empowering artists in the way that we should and creating technology that is easily integratable across many different systems. So that's a great segue back to one of our earlier conversations about digital ownership. There's nothing more specific about I've built, I've created, I've whatever. I have literally instigated or created this specific song, piece of art, piece of code, whatever it is. Yeah. I should own it. Well, perhaps yes, perhaps no. And there's a lot of different questions that are about that. And 10, okay, five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, there was a lot about open source versus proprietary code. Where is it being built? Who owns it? Do you have the right licenses? Do you have the right capabilities of generally available versus lots of ownership issues and lots of previous enterprise software contracts that spent way too much ink on making sure that everything from an ownership perspective was clear. And here we are 2022, and it seems to only have gotten uh, the mud, the waters continue to be muddy as it pertains to that. I'm an artist. I create something. I own it. Well, you do until you don't. <laughs> so I, I, I welcome your thoughts on that. Relative, and because you've got some great subject matter expertise on this, John, and I want to continue to fixate a little bit on this only because it's an area that I know about and I know just enough about to be dangerous about. Sure. As it pertains to ownership of intellectual rights of something that somebody has created. And I can very easily argue that a lot of music that's now becoming zeros and ones that's being streamed on YouTube yeah. has as its makeup different stems, as you have said, that. Each is its own individual piece of the puzzle. Who owns it? How do we figure that out? As people are now trying to monetize that in different ways, and in many ways, popularly, trying to help the artists achieve a better slice of the pie than they previously have, how does all of this fall out into play, and where do you see it going in terms of digital ownership of creativity, uh, creatively built? A couple of things there, and, and this is a really good topic because it's, it's also ever-evolving, right? With, with 5G right around the corner, that's just going to completely reinvent media publishing and distribution again, right? Like 4G did, right? So it's going to be really interesting to see how the effects of 5G is on, on the, the publishing of, of side of music. As far as ownership goes, you know, I, I laugh all the time running incubators now and talking to more tech and tech enabled entrepreneurs, your IP is only as good as you can protect it. <laughs> If Google wants to reverse engineer what, what they like about your platform or Facebook or you name it, good luck, right? Sure, you might be able to win, but at what cost, right? Music can be a little bit more forgiving, uh, fortunately. If, you know, the documenting, the, the historical information as it relates to the music that you've developed or you've created, right? A lot of these DAWs, you know, your Abletons and your, your recording softwares, You've got footprints, you've got timestamps. A lot of times people say, put it on a CD and mail it to yourself, uh, right? And don't open it kind of a thing as well. So to leveraging, you know, the BMIs and the ASCAPs of the world as well, and, and making sure that you are actually documenting ownership of said thing is really important. 
Now, even with that, though, even with going through some of these bigger organizations that keep documentation of that, stuff always falls through the cracks because there's too much human involvement in managing the distribution usage, right? And licenses of these songs, right? And where they're being put out all over the world on the internet. And so when you start introducing Web3, when you start introducing infrastructure that can take the genesis of information, but then also document every instance and where it's used, that's super compelling now, right? Because now we can get rid of, you know, big wig publishers and, and people trying to strong arm you in ownership and distribution when it always comes back to you every time that thing ends up getting used, technically speaking, right? And so that's what it really excites me. There is a lot of minutiae, right? Especially with NFTs and the utilities behind what that looks like. And we're in the Wild West. We're in the Netscape era of Web3 right now, right? And so you have all the really strong technical people racing and figuring out how we can we can simplify it for us, us smaller-minded peons and make the UX and UI compelling enough for us to feel like it is you know, Web2, but in a Web3 environment, right? And that level of familiarity anyway, right? Obviously, it's going to be a much different experience at the end of the day. I think we're on our way there. There's still a lot of kinks and you're seeing a lot of bad press right now, especially in the crypto community. But just like anything else, just like any other time in history where big pushes were made, especially when the internet collapsed, all the big newspaper magazine companies and killed companies like Kodak, right? Like you're always going to have the, the, you know, old guard hanging on to the last straw and, you know, Kodak, and at least they said, we're going down. Like, we don't even want to, we don't even want to figure it out. In some of the bigger publisher though, like, you know, the, the Wall Streets and the big magazines and newspapers were very combative, right? With ownership and, and journalism and writing and rights and what that looks like. And to this day, it's still an issue, right? So I'm, I'm hoping that we're moving into more of an era of transparency with technology, democratization of ownership, because I think everybody then wins. And when we can, when we realize that when everybody wins and we find mutual value between parties and how to lift each other up with tech, that's where that human element comes into play. We all want to do good work. We all want to support one another. Um, and when we level the playing field, I think is when people are more honest and egos are out of the way. So you just touched on several different items. Crypto, obviously, been in the news uh, steadily for the last several years, but especially um, thanks to SBF quite a bit over the last month or so with FTX. And crypto is an area I want to touch on. You talked about the democratization of ownership, which is something that's extraordinarily cool as it pertains to literally making sure the human is driving the software and once they've created it, that they're able to maintain and create that ownership and, and have that across the board. I want to circle back around on a particular area of interest, and that is around this concept of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. All the rage, still in many cases, all the rage. However, still in many cases, ultimately confusing, bizarre, and wait a minute, I can actually own something that's digital, but isn't real, but is real. And I'm going to bid on other people for that. And I have to have an account in a couple of different spots to be able to manage that. My head just exploded. I don't understand. <laughs> John, give us the uh, John Cesaro NFT 101 take from your side. All an NFT is, is a digital receipt. That's it. It's a digital receipt. Okay. Like, when, when you look at the tokenomics and you really try to establish utilities with NFTs, that's where it gets more interesting, right? Like, you know, you can enable NFTs to do more than it just being ownership of said thing. It could be ownership of experiences. It could be ownership of, you know, more than one item, right? Like, so you can see where it gets confusing, but it's no different, right? Than somebody owning a Picasso and you have it in your home. And you bought that, you've got the receipt, you've got the purchase, right? And whatever documentation that that qualifies it as such, right? Because you know what I mean? There's a ton, a ton of fraud in the art community, right? With, with people selling other people's art, but it's just a print, right? And so that's where this idea now, right, of blockchain and, and Web3 tooling 
that allows them to say, no, that's actually a fake one. And you can validate it pretty quickly through these types of infrastructures. And NFT is just one avenue and one opportunity for artists to go, yeah, they got that and it's real and it's got the digital receipt. They got it from me. And there you go. Right. Like, and do you want to own it in the virtual world? Do you want to own it in the real world? Yeah. I mean, the choice is yours. Right. If anything, I, I would hope that NFTs create more um, transparency into actual ownership of said item that if you were to buy something off of eBay or buy something off of uh, Craigslist or Facebook listings, right? Uh, that I don't know, right? It, they, they say it's what it is. Is it really what it is? How can I validate that? Well, we've got Michael Loker with an excellent comment on LinkedIn about essentially NFT equals a certificate of authenticity. It's that digital receipt that you just mentioned. And thank right. you, Michael, for bringing that to the table. I, I think that there's so much, and that's an entire separate multi-hour episode of live casting <laughs> on whether it's crypto, whether it's NFT, whether it's digital ownership, any of those. And in each one of those, we could dive quite, quite deep into on a number of different fronts. Something that is of particular interest to me, you've made the switch. 10 years ago, you went from music into entrepreneurship. And going back to our five to 50 phrase of you being involved, and I know that you're involved as a mentor, as a leader, as an incubator, as a facilitator of conversations on a number of different fronts in a variety of different types of industries. Tell us a little bit about that diversity of John that you are bringing to the table with kind of connectivity points on so many different areas and what, how that's benefited you. I'm a really big Bob Iger fan. So you were happy a month ago when he was welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's something that he said in his masterclass that really struck me recently and, and, and summarized a lot of where I am now. And it was during the acquisition of Pixar, right? And at that time, Disney and Apple weren't on the best of terms. And putting so it Bob, mildly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Bob uh, calls up Steve Jobs and he goes, I have a crazy idea. And Steve goes, I'm listening. He goes, what if we acquired Pixar? And uh, long, long story short, it ended up happening. But what he said was when he visited Pixar's office and he was walking through one of the things that really struck out to me about their culture that was so exciting and innovative was the artists were pushing the technologists to be able to support their storytelling in a way that was not currently available on the market they could not produce the quality of work they wanted to with the technology that was available but then the technology and being pushed to innovate ended up inspiring the artists on what the art of the possible is with storytelling. And it was inside of the creativity meeting the, the engineer mindset that something truly beautiful and unique happened. And, and I think about going from music to, to marketing to incubation, I get really excited on A, helping entrepreneurs navigate the difficult task of starting up and making sure that they don't make all the stupid mistakes I did because my God, if I made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I tell entrepreneurs all the time, there's two ways to learn something. You can slam your head into that brick wall over there and realize it's not going to go through. Or you can read the book that says, don't slam your head into a brick wall. It's not going to go through by the guy that already did it. <laughs> and he wrote a book about it, right? And, and so I think the uh, bringing those sides together is where I, I, I tend to thrive and, and being creative on the art of the possible. And when I say that, it's now with multiple incubators. It's, so yeah, I am a, a part of a lot of things, but the reason being is because it's all providing value to the ecosystem of MediaTek Ventures, right? From launching the cannabis incubator, Canatech Ventures here in Chicago with a bunch of incredible partners and focusing now on the cannabis industry, which is also siloed and fractured. And I see a lot of early uh, signs of where the music industry was when it was trying to innovate technically, right? You've had an industry, well, it, music industry wasn't illegal, but you've had an industry that technology wasn't built for, for decades on end, right? <laughs> to support. And now here we are. What an incredible frontier as the cannabis industry continues to grow and, and technology continues to innovate there. And then, you know, Tile Yard with London and, and their entrepreneurship 
curriculum there and, and teaching these kids on, you know, through their MA courses on, you know, yeah, you could be in the music industry, but you can also innovate within the music industry. And what does that look like? Is there something that you'd rather pursue as an entrepreneur rather than production or writing songs? And so there's just so many similarities between being an artist and being a technical founder. I'm happy to be right in the middle of. It's interesting. And you'd mentioned, and there's some great chat going on currently in the LinkedIn channel. Thank you, Michael, for the for the, for the comments and thoughts on that, especially as it relates to uh, Pixar art driving tech and, and, and several different other areas. And, and it circles back around on a couple of different areas. The one in particular is, again, touching on digital ownership, but more so the capability of let's take it away from digital ownership. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about in our last few minutes, this concept of the subtitle of our live cast. It's called humanizing software. However, what we really are talking about is people-driven tech. So in your mind, John, when I say those three words, people-driven tech, what immediately comes to mind? Steam. I knew it was going to come up. Steam education. (laughs) Ready, set, go. You know, like uh, um, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math is super important. And in in an era where we're destroying K-12 art programs and and putting in coding boot camps and robotics facilities, what a time to be alive. We're literally trying to train people how to be better robots than robots. And one of my favorite quotes of all time is, art begins at the end of science. And if you if you can only look at data for what it is rather than what it could be, man, what a what a wild world we would live in, right? You're never going to be able to teach a person to be a better robot than a robot. And I think we really need to encourage more creativity. It's going to be one of the most in demand, right, expertise in over the next fifty years. Because again, it goes back to objective versus subjective. As marketers, we look at things subjectively because we need to ask a lot of questions to distill down the appropriate answers to put into work, which is what we call advertising, right? And so when you talk, when you think about humanizing software, well, if we take out art, we take out what makes us human. We take out the, the creative bone. And now we're literally just looking at things for what, what they are. And the scientific method is great. But if we can't be creative on our hypotheses, are we really pushing the art of the possible or are we just being as good as it needs to be for now? That is an excellent tie-off point of good enough, good to great, better enough. What is the definition? Five to 50. Of, yeah. And, and, and there we go. So literally, whether it's five or it's 50, how do you make sure that you're making your biggest impact? <laughs> Last question as we begin to wrap up, John, you've told me some really, really killer stories of some folks that you have interacted with, especially in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. Um, You have regaled me with a number of tales. For those that can be shared that you would like to have digitally encased forever (laughs) on this humanizing software, regale us with one of your most favorite tales that literally caused you to go, oh my God, what have I done? In, in a good way or a bad way? <laughs> I, I don't care. <laughs> that, was such a, that was such a in the middle uh, expression of, oh my God, what have I done? I would say one of the, I'll never forget as, as artists, when we show up to gigs, we're always loading in, loading out. That equipment is heavy. I'll never forget that we opened up for Blues Traveler at the House of Blues in Chicago. And when we pulled up Lower Wacker, they had stagehands come out. It was like the first time, like we never had to like load in our own gear. And like, and something so small in, in, in retrospect was played such a profound impact on me. It was like, it was really the first time I was like, holy shit, like guys, like we're not even carrying our own gear anymore. We're right? here. Like, like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and even, you know, being able to hang out with John Popper or, or you know, Adam Counting Crows, we open up for them. You know, they're definitely share the stage and, and walking out in front of, you know, 1,500 to 5,000 people, the energy and the power and, and the, can, I'll never be able to recreate that, right? There's a part of me that like will always miss the feeling I got walking out on stage and, and performing. It's just, it's a, it's a, irreplaceable. But I've now found just as much passion, I would say, in watching and in helping entrepreneurs go from idea to incorporation to raising capital and and I've been, you know, in, in helping them just navigate and, and not hit the roadblocks that I did. And I think as 
as mentors, as, as champions of innovation and, and fostering entrepreneurship. I would hope that everybody that has been fortunate in their career to partner up with a local program, even if it's a college commercialization program, even though I'm not too fond of those in particular, it's still a resource for a lot of people. And there's just so much, 90% of startups fail, right? What a wild statistic. So what about, what if we got that down to 80, right? And 5% is probably hundreds of thousands of companies, right? That are trying to change the world to make it a better place. It is. It's fascinating in so many different fronts. And I know we've got, it looks like the conversation is being continued. Uh, Daniel and Michael and Joseph, thank you for bringing on the questions. We want to, and we will engage with you in so many different ways. But today's conversation is coming to a close as we wrap up uh, for today's Humanizing Software Livecast. A couple of things, John, first and foremost, thank you. A thousand times, thank you. Your insight, your experience, your sharing on a very, very diverse set of subjects um, <laughs> that are near and dear to a number of folks' hearts. I certainly am appreciative of that. And I just wanted to say thank you for that, first and foremost. Secondly, I want to share a shout out to everybody else that's out there on the humanizing software side. As we continue the conversations, we do invite you. Let's keep the threads going. Continue to ask questions. Visit our website at tailwindsw.com. Follow us on everything from Twitter to Facebook to LinkedIn on uh, our YouTube channel. We want to continue this conversation, keeping the humans in software, people-driven technology. All of this is something that is absolutely critical, especially as we're exploring the very, very nascent beginnings of Web 3.0 and what technology is going to be in the future. So as we finish up and wrap up today's episode, we want, again, to thank everybody for listening in. Thank you, John, for joining. Thanks and for having wish, me. Absolutely. And we wish everybody a very, very good morning, a good afternoon, and good evening. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.